0: Hello and welcome to another teaching from 119 Ministries. Our ministry believes that the whole Bible is true and directly related to our lives today. If you would like to know more about what we believe and teach, please visit us at testeverything.net. If you enjoy this video, don't forget to hit the like button and subscribe to our channel by hitting the button down below. We hope you enjoy studying and testing the following teaching. Regardless of one's background, Jew or Gentile, our goal in this teaching is to show how there is one God, one body, and one faith. The time will soon come when He will gather us all together as one flock, and He will be our shepherd. Because we believe this teaching is so important and vital to understand, we will walk through this teaching in a systematic form. Our goal is to reveal the overlooked biblical history and prophecy surrounding Israel. Matthew chapter 15 verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. There have been many assumptions as to the nature of Israel. Many would say it's a small country in the Middle East. Others say it's another name for the Jews. Yet still others say that it's now the Christian church. While these answers may have an element of truth to them, they are still lacking the full picture as to what the scriptures give us as recognizing the true biblical Israel. Many fail to understand or realize that just like the U.S., Israel ended up being divided in two with a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Yet unlike the U.S., Israel never came back together. In fact, after some time, These two kingdoms were both banished from their land and taken into captivity. The northern kingdom was taken into Syria and the southern kingdom into Babylon. Then, only the southern kingdom, the majority of it anyway, returned to the land. The scripture normally defines the northern kingdom as the house of Israel and the southern kingdom as the house of Judah. However, at times, house of Israel or just Israel can refer to both. As we read the scriptures concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah, we simply assume that it is in reference to all 12 tribes of Israel every time. Yet, this is not always the case. The scriptures are quite clear in distinguishing these divisions of Israel as two separate entities, kingdoms, or nations. The question is, how is this related to us today? And the answer? More than you can imagine. Understanding the division of Israel is paramount and absolutely foundational. When one comes to this understanding, the Bible becomes self-explanatory, and their comprehension of the scriptures will go beyond what has ever been imagined. Even illustrations like that of the prodigal son will reveal what has been missed for all these years Even the two sticks that come together in Ezekiel chapter 37 just comes to life. Before we begin to examine this topic of the division of Israel in the scriptures, let's look at one verse in Isaiah chapter one. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. So ask yourselves the question, Am I willing to reason with the scriptures or am I wanting to debate my perspective? This is imperative that we answer this question now. Are you willing to examine the scriptures from the viewpoint that some of your existing beliefs could be wrong? Could you actually entertain the thought that something you have believed in for years may not be true? This is difficult, especially for pastors but something that needs to be honestly addressed. So again, I say, ask yourself, am I willing to reason with the scriptures or am I wanting to debate my perspective? You, and only you, can answer this question. Isaiah chapter one, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says Yahweh. During the early days of the New Testament times, only the Old Testament existed. So when the New Testament was being written, they only had one source to explain themselves, one source to give the definitions to the words and the phrases they were using, one source to put to the test all that was being written, the Old Testament, also referred to as the Tanakh. Just as the Bereans tested everything Paul said to the scriptures, we need to do the same to our own beliefs. In order for us to truly understand the full context of the New Testament, we have to obtain a firm foundation and understanding that which can only be grounded in the Old Testament. It is the Old Testament that serves as the roadmap to guide us through all that came to be called the New Testament and that which is still yet to come. If we are holding to something that does not line up in agreement with the Old Testament, Then we are saying that God's word contradicts itself and it shows that we are off the map and going in our own direction. So let us begin examining the scriptures to enable us to honestly determine where we are with our understanding concerning the full context of the scriptures. For us to best understand why and how this topic of Israel being divided is so relevant to us today, let's go back to Abraham the one noted as the father of the faith. Starting with Abraham, will begin a broad overview of history through the scriptures to show us how we arrived to where we are today. In so doing, we'll better understand what lies ahead of us in the future. God said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 22, verses 17 and 18, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Here we see that Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, not too hard to grasp. Let's continue forward with what was promised to his son Isaac. We must note here that Isaac was the second born to Abraham, yet he received the firstborn blessing. To Isaac, God said, Genesis chapter 26, verses 4 and 5, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give them all these lands, and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my requirements, my commandments, my decrees, and my laws. Here we see virtually the same promise given to Isaac as Abraham. Again, not too hard to grasp. Let's move forward with Isaac's son, Jacob. We must note here, like with Isaac, that Jacob was the secondborn, yet received the firstborn blessing. To Jacob, God said, Genesis chapter 28, verses 13 through 15, And behold, Yahweh stood above it and said, I am Yahweh. The God of Abraham your father, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, and to the north and to the south, and in you and your offsprings shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you, and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Again, we see virtually the same promise continuing down the line of Abraham. And we see here in the text that Jacob started in the land of Canaan. He and all his sons first lived in Canaan. Jacob's name was eventually changed to Israel. Genesis chapter 35, verse 10. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. The name Israel means he that strives with God. Not striving with God in the sense of opposing God, but rather in the sense of serving and assisting God. It was through Israel's 12 sons that the promise given to him, his father Isaac and grandfather Abraham, began to take root. The 12 sons of Israel are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin. Because of a famine, Israel moves all his family from the land of Canaan to the land of Goshen, just outside of Egypt. It is here where Israel blesses the sons of Joseph. Israel even declares that Joseph's sons are to be treated as his Genesis chapter 48, verse 5. And now your two sons, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. When blessing the two boys, as the pattern has shown, his firstborn blessing goes to the secondborn Ephraim and not to the firstborn Manasseh. Genesis chapter 48, verses 17 through 19. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. And so here is where things begin to get interesting. Israel said that Ephraim will become a multitude of nations. The Hebrew for multitude of nation is melo ha goyim, meaning the fullness of the nations. From a Greek mindset, nations means Gentiles. The name Gentile simply means of the nations or not of the one nation Israel. From God's perspective, you are either of his nation, singular, or you are of the nations, plural. So even though Ephraim received the firstborn blessing, he was also prophesied to be the fullness of those not belonging to God. We'll come back to this a little while later. While in Egypt, The Israelites continued to increase. Genesis chapter 47, verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And after Joseph died, they were enslaved. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and, if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. The rest of the book of Exodus details how Yahweh delivers his people from Egypt through Moses and uses Moses to lead them. It was at this time that the law was given in written form to his people on Mount Sinai, his people being all twelve tribes of Israel and the aliens who had left and joined with them. Yet they rebelled against God and did not have the faith to take the promised land. Thus, they were not allowed to enter it. Numbers chapter 14, verses 20 through 23. Then Yahweh said, I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice, shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers and none of those who despise me shall see it. It was only the children of this generation that was to enter the promised land under Joshua. Just before entering the promised land, we see God adding a new covenant to that which was given to the generation before. What exactly is this new covenant? The covenant that came to the first generation under Moses was not so much the instructions, but rather the blessings and curses that would result, pending the obedience or disobedience to those instructions. And we see that this new covenant is simply an expansion of those blessings and curses. First, compare what Moses says to this next generation. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as Yahweh our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In this same chapter, he gives a brief summary of the added covenant being given to them. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 27. When you father children and children's children and have grown old in the land, if you act corruptly, by making a carved image in the form of anything, and by doing what is evil in the sight of Yahweh your God, so as to provoke him to anger, I shall call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will soon utterly perish from the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed." and Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. Toward the end of Deuteronomy, we see him giving another view, the blessings. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 through 2. And if you faithfully obey the voice of Yahweh your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, Yahweh your God will set you high above the nations of the earth and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of Yahweh your God. Then, after he gives the blessings that would come from the obedience, he then gives curses that would result from disobedience. Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of Yahweh your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. After explaining these curses, he then explains how this is an added covenant with them. Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 1. These are the words of the covenant that Yahweh commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab besides the covenant that he had made with them in Horeb. So we see that this was a covenant that was added to the previous covenant, not doing away with the previous covenant, just adding a new covenant along with it. As a part of the curse in this new covenant, we see that the Father declares he will literally spread his people into the nations if they choose to disobey. Again, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 27. And Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 36 through 37. Yahweh will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And you shall become a horror, a proverb, a byword among all the peoples where Yahweh will lead you away. Yet immediately following, he mentions what will happen when they choose to return to his ways. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses one through five. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mine among all the nations where Yahweh your God has driven you, and return to Yahweh your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I commanded you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then Yahweh your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. We'll cover this more a little later. Some have said that the covenant was made too difficult for them to follow on purpose. Could that be true? Was it an impossibility to follow these commandments in complete obedience? Of course not. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verses 11 through 14. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. These are the verses Paul quoted in Romans chapter 9. For a further study on these verses, please see our Prayer of Salvation teaching at testeverything.net. Yet to whom does it say that this new covenant was given? Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 14 through 15 It is not with you alone that I am making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before Yahweh our God, and with whoever is not here with us today. So this covenant was given not only to that generation, but also to all generations who would come after them. After receiving this added covenant, the Israelites began taking back the land of Canaan and eventually desired to have a king over them. First, there was Saul, then David, and then Solomon. It must be noted that all 12 tribes and the aliens, or Gentiles, who joined them were governed by all three of these three kings. But then Solomon began leading the people of Israel to follow other gods. Remember, God said he would scatter them among the nations if they didn't follow his instructions. So after Solomon died, God gave 10 tribes of Israel to Solomon's servant, Jeroboam. Thus, the beginning of the spreading of Israel across the nations would begin. 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 31 through 33. And he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes, But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Asheroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Shamash, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. And they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did." So Jeroboam was given 10 tribes of Israel. It's interesting to note that Jeroboam was actually from the tribe of Ephraim. First Kings, chapter 11, verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, an Ephraimite of Ezerodah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. Just a few verses later, we also learn That he was also in charge of the whole labor force of the house of Joseph. We must remember here that it was Ephraim, son of Joseph, that was promised to become the fullness of the nations, the Gentiles. The fullness of those not belonging to God's nation. And so, here we see the prophecy to Ephraim beginning to manifest. It is here that Israel is divided into two divisions, a northern and a southern kingdom The northern kingdom, that being the ten tribes that left with Jeroboam, often referred in Scripture as the House of Israel, House of Joseph, or Ephraim. And the southern kingdom, that being Judah and Benjamin, with Benjamin eventually assimilating into Judah, referred to in the Scriptures as House of Judah. The northern kingdom eventually established their capital in Samaria, And yet for over 200 years, the northern kingdom did nothing different than that of Solomon in the eyes of Yahweh. They disobeyed God's instructions and followed after other gods. It came to the point that God no longer called them his people. Hosea chapter 1, verse 9. Then Yahweh said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. In 721 BCE, God had Assyria conquer Samaria and take the northern kingdom captive to Assyria. 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 6. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, and on the Habar, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. The king of Assyria then brought in foreign people into the land of Samaria, he later sent a priest back to teach them the ways of God. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 28-34 through 34. So one of the priests, whom they had carried away from Samaria, came and lived in Bethel and taught them how they should fear Yahweh. But every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. Every nation in the cities and in which they lived the men of Babylon made Sukoth benoth the men of Kuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Abites made Nabaz and Tarkak. And the Sepharvites burned their children in the fire to Adramalak and Amamelak, the gods of Sepharbaim. They also feared Yahweh and appointed from among themselves all sorts of people as priests of the high places, who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. So they feared Yahweh, but also served their own gods, after the manner of the nations from among whom they had been carried away. To this day, they do according to the former manner." They do not fear Yahweh, and they do not follow the statutes or the rules or the law or the commandment that Yahweh commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. God had warned Israel just before crossing the Jordan with the added covenant that this would happen if they didn't obey. But they ignored the covenant of God that said, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 36, Yahweh will bring you and your king, whom you set over you, to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. And so now we see in 721 BCE this scripture in Deuteronomy beginning to unfold. We see the people of Israel no longer remain a people but begin assimilating into the nations. Even Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 8, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. They were no longer a people. They were no longer God's people. In sending the northern kingdom off to Assyria, God declared he divorced her through Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8 she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Let us remember that the reason God divorced the ten tribes of the northern kingdom was because they hardened their hearts and rejected God's law in pursuing other gods. As a result of this divorce, they were truly no longer Israel, his people. It is because they are no longer his people that we see in the New Testament and modern day as well that Israel as a whole is only known by the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom was no longer Israel. Only the southern kingdom of Judah could truly go by the name anymore. And in all this, we see the unfolding of that which was spoken over 1,100 years earlier to Joseph's son Ephraim by Jacob himself. Genesis chapter 48, Verse nineteen, but his father refused and said, "I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." In the midst of the northern kingdom's turmoil, you would think that Judah would make it a lesson learned for themselves, but they didn't, as the last half of Jeremiah chapter three verse eight says. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 18-19 through 19. Therefore Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also did not keep the commandments of Yahweh their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. Since the kingdom of Judah did not learn their lesson from the northern kingdom, it wasn't much longer that they were taken captive as well. Yet, they were taken to Babylon. 2 Kings 20, verse 17. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says Yahweh. 2 Kings chapter 24, verse 20. For because of the anger of Yahweh, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out of his presence. So Jerusalem and the first temple are both destroyed and the people of Judah are taken captive to Babylon in approximately 586 BCE. The scriptures tell us it would be for 70 years. Daniel chapter 9, verse 2. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of Yahweh, to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of desolations of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus says Yahweh, When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. We find 70 years later that the return is recorded in the book of Nehemiah and Ezra. It is at this time we actually see some of those who the king of Assyria sent to live in Samaria. Ezra chapter 4 verses 1 through 3. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to Yahweh, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of esar Hardan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to Yahweh, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. These were the ancestors of the Samaritans of Yeshua's day. This should shed some light on why the Jews were so at odds with those of Samaria during the time of Yeshua. It is only because of this return of the southern kingdom to the land that we see the Jews in the land of Israel today. The very name Jew became slang for those who were of the house of Judah and lived in the land of Judah, which later became known as Judea. Thus, as a construct of the name of the tribe and the name of the land they lived, those who lived in Judea were considered Jews. The northern kingdom, or house of Israel of course, were not referred to as Jews. Judah had every intent of returning to God's ways found in his law when they returned to the land of Judah. However, Judah ended up adding barriers and fences around the law of God in order to keep from breaking it. They did this because they were so concerned about breaking the law of God that they made extra commandments around God's commandments to try and make sure they never even came close to breaking God's law. In fact, we see this mentality beginning during the return of Judah in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 13 verses 15 through 19. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on that day when they sold food, Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark in the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. So here we see Nehemiah commanding the gates to be shut so no one could sell at the marketplace in the city. Was this a bad thing? Of course not, but they should have just obeyed. There should have been no need to do something to prevent disobedience. However, this mentality eventually grew, not only in adding more fences to keep from breaking God's law, but the fences themselves became equated to God's law thus elevating man's law equal to or even higher than God's. We can witness some of the rabbis elevating their decrees higher than God's commandments in the Talmud, which originated from the oral law of the Jews. Consider, my son, be careful concerning rabbinical decrees even more than the Torah. The Torah contains prohibitions, but anyone who violates a rabbinic decree is worthy of death. Babylonian Talmud, Eriven 21b. And, if there are 1,000 prophets, all of them, the stature of Eliah and Elisha, giving a certain interpretation, and 1,001 rabbis, not according to the 1,000 prophets, Elohim did not permit us to learn from the prophets, only from the rabbis, who are men of logic and reason. Rambam's Introductions to the Mishnah. So that which started out with good motive and intent to keep from breaking God's law developed into disobedience to God's law. Compare. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse two. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I give you. And Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32. See that you do all I command you do not add to it or take away from it. So although Judah had God's law as opposed to the northern kingdom, they eventually held their own law in equal or higher value. It was this very sin that Yeshua rebuked the Pharisees for. Mark chapter seven verses eight through nine. "You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. Mark chapter 7, verse 13. Thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. See also Matthew chapter 23, verses 1 and 2. So although Judah returned, they soon started adding their own laws to follow which, as we mentioned earlier, would later become known as the Talmud. So, although Judah returned, their heart was not after Yahweh's word, but after man's traditions. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 10. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister, Judah, did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares Yahweh. Pretense. It's an attempt to make something that is not the case appear true. The Northern Kingdom, on the other hand, never returned. Esar-Haddon, king of Assyria, finished what his predecessor had started in taking the Northern Kingdom into captivity. After this, the Northern Kingdom is rarely, if ever, acknowledged as a unified entity in scripture again. This is because they were eventually dispersed and never returned to Samaria like the southern kingdom returned to the land of Judah. So where did these tribes go? No one really knows. There's no doubt that fragments did return to the area, but as a whole, they became truly lost, at least in the eyes of man. Though in the New Testament, not all of those in the northern 10 tribes had fully been lost just yet. Eventually, they became scattered and fully assimilated amongst all the nations. They were truly lost in the eyes of man. The scriptures even prophetically referring to them with a new name. Jeremiah chapter 50 verse 6. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. From mountain to hill they have gone. They have forgotten their fold. Ezekiel chapter 34 verse 6. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth, with none to search or seek for them. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 through 12, For thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock, when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they had been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Here is where we begin seeing an issue that needs to be understood. God says that he will rescue the sheep he scattered. Yet, how can this be? God said in Jeremiah that he divorced Israel, the northern kingdom. Again, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. This may seem like a non-issue to many, but let's consider what God's own law says about one who divorces a woman and the command given regarding remarrying her. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 4. Then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she had been defiled, for that is an abomination before Yahweh. Yahweh's own law forbids him to remarry the one he has divorced. So are we looking at a do-as-I-say, not-as-I-do type of situation? Surely not. Sin is defined as breaking the law of God, 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. And we know Yahweh does not sin, for we know that the northern kingdom did indeed defile herself, Ezekiel chapter 20. Verse 43. And there you shall remember your ways and all your deeds with which you have defiled yourselves, and you shall loathe yourselves for all the evils that you have committed. The mere fact that they did not return to Yahweh right away shows that they continued in their rebellious ways of fornication with other gods. Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. Hosea of chapter 5, verse 11. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. Ephraim had no heart of returning, but continuing after idols. Hosea chapter 6, verse 10. In the house of Israel I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. This verse alone shows that Ephraim is defiled and thus cannot return, according to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Remember, Deuteronomy 24.4 says, is not allowed to marry her again after she has been defiled. It also states that once the woman becomes joined with another, she cannot remarry her former husband. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 2 through 4. We find that Ephraim joined with another after being divorced, Hosea chapter 4, verse 17. Ephraim is joined to idols. Leave him alone. We also have Hosea chapter 8, verse 9. For they have gone up to Assyria like a wild donkey wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. There is little doubt that this was Ephraim's intent and it obviously continued as such even after the years of banishment to Assyria. Isaiah chapter seven, verse eight. For the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is only Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. There was no repentance to return, and they continued in their ways. So, it is in all of this that we see God cannot bring Ephraim back. However, we see elsewhere that bringing Ephraim back is definitely his intent. Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 15. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares Yahweh God. Micah chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold. Like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. This was a great mystery to all the prophets and rabbis. They wondered how he could remarry the very one he divorced and declared to have given herself over to prostitution. God cannot break the very righteous laws that define his own righteousness. Breaking the law of God is sin. The law defines sin according to God's own words. God cannot sin. How then can God remarry the lost sheep of Israel without breaking his own law, Deuteronomy chapter 24, without sinning? You are now understanding the great mystery of the gospel that Paul wrote about. The way God was going to accomplish this was hidden from his people for so long. So many do not even understand Paul's teachings on this matter today. How could God remarry who he divorced, when God says it was sin to do so. For there was only one way he could be released from that particular commandment of the law, death. Paul himself expounds on this in solving this mystery of the gospel. Romans chapter 7, verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Likewise, Paul goes on to say that we die in Christ when we come into the faith releasing both us and God from the requirement of the law as it relates to divorce and remarriage. So Christ came down and died for the lost sheep in order to bring them back into the fold. It is really the greatest love story never told. And just as many Egyptians joined the Hebrews in leaving Egypt in the Exodus by way of the Passover Lamb, Christ has opened the door that whosoever shall call upon him can be saved. He came as the word to die in our place. The only way the covenant could be annulled was through death of either partner. This was his goal, to die as the Son of God, to restore that which was lost. Luke chapter 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save what was lost. What was lost? His people. Thus, the words of Jesus, his Hebrew name being Yeshua, in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So when you die in him, you are dead to the sins of our disobedience. If you live in him, you can be reunited with Yahweh. But if you are not in him, you are still in the divorce state. Consider dead in your sins and cannot be united back to Yahweh. Even Hosea chapter 13 mentions this in verse 1. When Ephraim spoke, men trembled. He was exalted in Israel, but he became guilty of Baal worship and died. Notice that Ephraim was declared dead by the Baal worship, spiritually dead, declared dead before even being divorced. So would that not be enough to annul the covenant? No. This spiritual death just left them dead in their sins and now out of covenant with the Father because of those sins. At the point of their rebellion, they were no longer considered God's son anymore. Hosea chapter one, verse nine. And Yahweh said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Thus, in the eyes of God, they were dead because they were no longer his. And this is why we see Paul's writings say in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses." Dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, meaning out of covenant. Circumcision represents covenant here. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This is what the story of the prodigal son is all about. Luke chapter 15, verse 24. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. Remember, Israel was considered the firstborn of God. Exodus chapter 4, verse 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says Yahweh, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Israel was called the firstborn of God, the son of God. But as a whole, they rebelled and was no longer considered the son of God. Yeshua was called the son of God because he obeyed perfectly. When he died on the cross, the marriage covenant was made void because he died as the true son, Israel. So now the house of Israel is enabled to be united again to Yahweh. Some have said, how can Yeshua be the bridegroom then? Isn't there a law saying that a man is not to marry his father's wife? The verse that is often referred to here is Deuteronomy chapter 22 verse 30. A man shall not take his father's wife so that he does not uncover his father's nakedness. We must understand that we are dealing with metaphors here. Metaphors are all over the scriptures. The problem that we believe is an issue for some is that metaphorically speaking, Yeshua had several roles to fill. Many could be trying to force one metaphorical role over another, when in reality, he is truly filling all these roles, but one is not necessarily over another. We hope that makes sense. Metaphors are metaphorical. For example, he is mentioned as the good shepherd, yet at the same time, he's the lamb of God. So is he shepherding himself? Of course not. They're just metaphors. He's also our bridegroom, the son of God, the word of God, and even the cornerstone or capstone and much more. So is one more important than the other? Is one metaphor to be stressed over another? We don't think so. So when one person says he's the good shepherd, And another says, no, he's the bridegroom. And still another says, no, he's the firstborn son. We simply respond with yes. Psalms chapter 91 verse 4 says that he will protect us with his feathers and wings. Psalms 91 verse 4, he will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. And Yeshua said in Matthew, Matthew chapter 23 verse 37. "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, You who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Does this make him a big chicken? Of course not. It's a metaphor. Even though Israel is the Son of God, Yahweh sometimes refers to Israel with a feminine article added. Other times, it is very definitive that he is referring to Israel as female. For example, Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. The word in Hebrew for sister is very clear that she would be considered a sister, thus a feminine gender. Amos chapter 5, verse 2. Fallen no more to rise is the virgin Israel, forsaken on her land with none to raise her up. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 20. Surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband, so have you been treacherous to me, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh. So with Israel, the Son of God, being referred to as such, we see how Yeshua, the Son of God, can easily fulfill the sacrifice of the female lamb for the unintentional sin in Numbers chapter 15, verses 27 through 35 as well. The thing is this, forcing one metaphor over another can truly be counterproductive. The bottom line is that they are all right in their given context. Speaking of metaphors, Both the Father and the Son are defined as the Word of God, and most already understand this. The Word of God is our marriage contract stating who we serve, which is Yahweh. We are to become one with Yahweh by obeying His Word, the marriage contract. The metaphor of marriage in this case is to represent our commitment to the marriage contract, which is the Word of God. Our marriage to Yeshua is to metaphorically represent us coming back into covenant with the Father through our commitment to the Word of God. And of course, Yeshua is the Word of God. This is not a literal marriage, and problems will occur, of course, if one attempts to make this a literal marriage. For example, I am a male. The Father is a male. Yeshua is a male. We are not entering into a marriage relationship that is forbidden by the Torah. If we keep the usage of the metaphor within the boundaries of its intent, then there are no problems. However, as soon as someone crosses metaphors or hyperliteralizes metaphors, problems will surface. This is not due to a problem with the scriptures, but due to a poor application of the intent of the metaphors at hand. And in this case, we see how he came as the Son of God for those who were lost. Matthew chapter 15, verse 24. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Redeeming the divorced northern kingdom was the mystery that the prophets could not understand. Matthew chapter 13, verse 17. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. The mystery was revealed in the living Word of God coming to die in order to rise from the dead to bring us back to Him and His eternal law. Romans chapter 16, 25 through 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, Messiah Yeshua, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, Messiah Yeshua. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3 verses 1 through 9. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, Messiah Yeshua, on behalf of you Gentiles, members of the same body, partakers of the promise of Messiah Yeshua through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light For everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. And Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, Colossians chapter 1, 25 through 27, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. To make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ came to bring his people back into the relationship that was established in his covenant. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He came to redeem his people so that they can come back in covenant with him, living in obedience to his law. Our Messiah knew the psalm that said, Psalms 103:17 through 18, But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant, and remember to do his commandments. In the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 24, verse 5, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. During the time of Christ, the Jews were centrally located in the land of Judea, but there were still others who were living in other nations. John chapter 7, verse 35. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? These are those who would make their pilgrimage for the feast days, as we see here in Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, under heaven. These are the ones to whom Peter said in the same chapter, Acts chapter 2, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Who are those who were far off that Peter was referring to? Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 15. Son of man, your brothers, even your brothers, your kinsmen The whole house of Israel, all of them are those of whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, Go far from Yahweh. To us, this land is given for a possession. Our Messiah's focus was the regathering of the lost sheep of Israel. At the time of Messiah's ministry, though, the assimilation of the northern kingdom into the nations abroad was well in progress, yet not completed. Not all of the northern kingdom had yet forgotten who they were. In fact, there were some who still recognized and acknowledged who they were. One example could be Anna, the prophetess. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. Knowing that there were these living in the surrounding areas, Christ's focus centered on them. Consider Matthew chapter 10, verse 5-6. through 6. These twelve Yeshua sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We see several times that the New Testament addresses those sheep scattered in the nations. Consider 1 Peter 1.1. Peter, an apostle of Yeshua, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, And Peter later says, 1 Peter 1, 22-25, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living, abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. He then confirms who he is talking to by the next verse, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Exodus 19, verse 6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 1 Peter 2, verse 10, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here uses the same language as found in scriptures regarding the lost sheep of Israel. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 8. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin, And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. Hosea chapter 1, verse 9. And Yahweh said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Even James says in chapter 1, verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, Messiah Yeshua, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Yet we know that the word spoken over Ephraim was indeed again. Genesis chapter 48, verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. As mentioned earlier, Israel said that Ephraim will become a multitude of nations, not that he would just become scattered amongst them, though they definitely would be scattered amongst them. The fullness of the prophecy is that Ephraim would become a multitude of nations, not just scattered. Remember, the Hebrew for multitude of nations is melo goyim, meaning the fullness of the nations. From a Greek mindset, nations means Gentiles. The name Gentile simply means of the nations. Though there were those who still remembered who they were and where they had come from within the northern kingdom, there were still many who had already began assimilating into the nations and so, to reach those who had already assimilated into the nations, God gave Paul the ministry of reconciliation to the Gentiles. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18-20. All this is from God be reconciled to God and Romans chapter 5 8 through 11 but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us since therefore we now have been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It was the ministry of reconciliation that Paul was to bring the northern kingdom back into unity with the southern kingdom. This was no easy task, as the Jews had done a pretty good job in widening the existing gap with their added laws. Again, these laws later became known as the Talmud. Along with these laws, the Jews actually created a physical barrier in the temple court. Gentile proselytes were not allowed past this wall. In addressing this topic of uniting the two kingdoms in the book of Ephesians, Paul refers to this wall as a metaphor in addressing the law of the Jews. Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 16. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Their hostility? What hostility? And where did it originate? Leviticus chapter 26, verse 21. Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. Christ removed their hostility and rebellion towards the Father and one another through the cross, enabling the two to become one again. This happens to be the same law Paul refers to in the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. As we noted earlier, God's law says, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 32, Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. The southern kingdom added to it, and the northern kingdom took away from it. Either way, it's rebellion against God's law. This is why Isaiah said to the southern kingdom, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way and Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Incidentally, it just so happens to be the same pattern today as it was in the day of Paul's ministry. The Jews add to the law, and the Gentiles take away from it. Both groups violating Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, just in their own way. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 2, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of Yahweh your God that I command you. And today we see some of these same issues that Paul struggled with in his ministry. For there are some who still remain hostile to God's law, just as those that did in Paul's day. Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And Romans chapter 9, 30 through 32. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, they rebelled against it, have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works, not from a heart to obey, but rather out of duty and that of works of man. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And again, in Romans chapter 11, he says, Two key phrases must be noted here. First, the fullness of the Gentiles. This is a direct reference of the prophecy spoken over Ephraim in Genesis. Genesis chapter 48, verse 19. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, His younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. The melo ha-goyim, the multitude of the nations, the fullness of the nations, the fullness of the Gentiles. And second, all Israel will be saved. Meaning the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, the Jew and the Gentile, all coming together. Romans chapter 11, verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved, as it is written. Romans chapter 11 is all about the two olive trees, the cultivated and the wild, representing the two kingdoms, the emphasis being that the kingdom, or olive tree, that was broken is now coming back together. For it was said, Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16, Yahweh once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit but with the roar of great tempest he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed but now we see as spoken in Ezekiel chapter 37 verses 15 through 24 the word of Yahweh came to me son of man take a stick write on it for Judah and the people of Israel associated with him then take another stick and write on it for Joseph the stick of Ephraim, and all the house of Israel associated with him, and join them one to another into one stick, that they may become one in your hand. And when your people say to you, Will you not tell us what you mean by these? Say to them, Thus says Yahweh God, Behold, I am about to take the stick of Joseph, that is, in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel associated with him. And I will join with it the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, that they may be one in my hand. When the sticks on which you write are in your hand before their eyes, then say to them, Thus says Yahweh God. Behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone, and will gather them from all around, and bring them to their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all, and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions, but I will save them from all their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God." My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. The focus of the Messiah was to bring his kingdom back together as one, one in the faith of Abraham, obedience. Our Messiah was not concerned with what one's physical lineage was or boasting that came with it. His concern was obedience. Compare. John chapter 8, verse 39. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Yeshua said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. This is huge. Yeshua is saying here that anyone who does what Abraham did is considered the children of Abraham. Well, what did Abraham do? Look in Genesis chapter 26, verses 4 and 5. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws, Torah. According to the words of the Messiah, those who obey God's commandments are those who can truly call Abraham their father. Think about what he said later to the Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham. John chapter 10, verses 24 through 27. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Yeshua answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Even of those who may be actual descendants of Abraham, if they do not obey God's commandments, then they are not considered children of Abraham. Again, the focus of Messiah was to bring his kingdom back together as one, one in the faith of Abraham, not just together as one, but one in obedience to the Father. It truly makes no difference what tribe one may be from, or if they have any Hebrew heritage at all. This is what Paul is saying in 1 Timothy 1, verse 4, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith, the faith that produces the obedience of Abraham. James 2, 21-24 Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. One's genealogy did not guarantee salvation, for even when they left Egypt, there were foreigners who came along with Israel. Exodus chapter 12, verse 38. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. Numbers chapter 11, verse 4. Now the mixed multitude who were among them yielded to intense craving. So the children of Israel also wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? This mixed multitude is defined by God himself to be as the children of Israel. And all are to follow the same law of God. Numbers chapter 15, 15 and 16. For the assembly there shall be one statute for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you, a statute forever throughout your generations. You and the sojourner shall be alike before Yahweh. One law and one rule shall be for you and for the stranger who sojourns with you. Consider also Ruth. She was a Moabite, yet in coming into the faith, she considered Israel's God to be her God and his ways to be her ways. What mattered then and still today is that we are walking in the faith of Abraham, the faith that produces the obedience of Abraham, obedience to God's law. It was in this that Paul saw many struggle. The question then becomes, why did they struggle with this? As Paul says, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 13-16, They struggled because of the veil. Exactly what veil, though? The same veil that covered Moses' face? Did that veil keep them from understanding the law that Moses gave at that time? Of course not. The law was given at the time his face shone, Exodus 34, 29-35. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that Yahweh had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went before Yahweh to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And we know they obeyed for some time after that. Verse 14 here shows their minds were hardened. Second Corinthians chapter three, 14 through 15. But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Messiah is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. It wasn't Moses' veil that made their minds hardened or covered their hearts, as verse 15 says. Paul here is showing that when the law was read, that the same veil came over their hearts as it did when it first began covering them in 721 BCE. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 65 Put a veil over their hearts, and may your curse be on them, the curse of the law. Paul, who knew the law and the prophets, is explaining the veil mentioned by Jeremiah here in Lamentations and the curse of the law, the curse of sin and death. It is in Messiah only that this veil and curse is taken away, as the verse says. Thus, only in the Messiah is the kingdom reunited. Uniting Israel back together was and still is a huge issue. The mere fact that Israel was divided should say something to us. Remember what Yeshua said. Luke chapter 11, verse 17. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. This is why the disciples asked him in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 through 7. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The disciples were under the impression that the Messiah was going to restore the kingdom of Israel as it was before it was divided. But the prophecy of Hosea was still to come. Hosea chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Come, let us return to Yahweh, For he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. Though we know the Messiah made it possible for the return to begin, the restoration would not fully come to fruition until we were in the third day of the punishment that was given. Is there a way for us to know where we are in the grand scheme of this timeline? We believe so. Again, the work of Messiah started the restoration, but it's in the third day that he completes the restoration. As Hosea says in chapter six, verse two, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. The phrase that we may live in his presence actually points us towards the time of the millennium. This is the revival that needs to be preached today, that he is bringing his people back to his ways, back to his decrees, and back to his law. This actually brings us to a scripture that we said we would come back to. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses one through five. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to the mind among all the nations where Yahweh, your God, has driven you, and return to Yahweh, your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then Yahweh, your God, will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where Yahweh, your God, has scattered you, If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there Yahweh your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And Yahweh your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. This is not regarding the Exodus from Egypt. This was spoken 40 years after Egypt to the second generation of those who left there. This prophecy of another exodus has yet to take place. The time is coming when the Father will bring all of Israel, both the southern and the northern kingdom, back to the land, even as Micah said in chapter 2, verse 12. I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will gather the remnant of Israel. I will set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a noisy multitude of men. Also, Ezekiel chapter 20, 34, and 41, I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and with wrath poured out. As a pleasing aroma, I will accept you when I bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will manifest my holiness amongst you in the sight of the nations." And then in Jeremiah 23, verse 7 through 8, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when they shall no longer say, As Yahweh lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as Yahweh lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. As for the possible timing on the next Exodus leading to the culmination of the restoration and regathering of Israel, we would recommend our teaching, the creation prophecy. In conclusion, when we referred to the added covenant given in Deuteronomy at the beginning of this teaching, we left a small part off that we'd like to share now Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 30. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of Yahweh your God and provoking Him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day, that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which Yahweh will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek Yahweh your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days, You will return to Yahweh, your God, and obey Him. We are truly in the latter days as His people are returning to Him in obedience. The day is coming when all twelve tribes and those who have joined in becoming citizens of Israel will be back as one, prepared and ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. As mentioned at the beginning, understanding the division of Israel is paramount and absolutely foundational. When one comes to this understanding, the Bible becomes self-explanatory, and their comprehension of all the scriptures will go beyond what has ever been imagined. We hope you have enjoyed this study. Remember, continue to test everything. Shalom.